Welcome to The Real Deal with Jason Silverman, the podcast dedicated to helping you build the business of your dreams and live the life you always hoped for, with valuable and fun tips and info to make your life easier and more fun. And now, here's your host, a man who sprinkles metal shavings on his breakfast cereal just for fun, Jason Silverman. Welcome to The Real Deal with Jason Silverman. I'm your host, Jason Silverman, and I'm thrilled to share some time with you once again today. As you know, I'm always on the hunt for interesting as well as super smart Real Deal guests. And I got to tell you, today's show is a winner. I want to introduce my listeners to somebody who's truly been there and done that, and I'm excited to pick his brain for your benefit today. Now, for the folks who I work with in any of my coaching programs or through Powerful Words, Character Development, All-Star Cheer Sites, or the Jason's Army Mastermind Group, you know how much I focus on the importance of motivation, right? Well, the show is going to help us to do just that. So today it's going to be my honor and privilege to share an amazing resource with you. You're going to love today's guest. He's got a ton of valuable information about what I consider to be really a game changer. And it's got a fun way to deliver it too. So I want you to strap yourself in. Today's show is going to be a blast. As I'm sure you already know, I'm committed to helping business owners just like you to become more successful, enjoy your career more, and in general, make your life significantly more fun. Let's face it, folks. We only get one ride on this merry-go-round, and we want to make sure that it is one hell of a ride. Alrighty, boys and girls, it is now that time. I want you to stop surfing Facebook, put away your phone, your tablet, your dog, your cat, your spouse, your child, anything that might possibly, possibly distract you from today's show. You're about to get some great and immediately implementable information, and I don't want you to miss even a second of it. So before we officially get going, uh, let me give you a little bit of background about our guest today. Dr. Ron Friedman has served on the faculty of the University of Rochester Nazareth College and Hobart and William Smith Colleges and has consulted for some of the world's most successful organizations. Popular accounts of his research have appeared on NPR and in major newspapers including the New York Times, Financial Times, The Globe and Mail, Washington Post, The Guardian, as well as magazines such as Men's Health, Entrepreneur, and Success. Ron is also the author of a highly acclaimed new book called The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. He's a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Psychology Today, Fast Company, Forbes, and CNN. Ron, welcome to The Real Deal. I'm thrilled to have you today. Oh, it's great to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure to have you. So before we officially get started, for those who haven't had the opportunity and pleasure of meeting you or hearing you speak, um, do me a favor. Take a second. Share your story with our listeners. What are you passionate about? What makes you tick? Who is Dr. Ron Friedman? <laughs> well, so I started off as a uh, psychologist. So I was a professor at all the universities you just mentioned. And so I was teaching people human motivation. I would study human motivation in the lab. And uh, that was kind of my career path as I was going to be a professor. And then I got into the classroom and I realized, wait a second, the thing that drew me to academics was learning new things. And what you discover as a full-time professor is that you're not really learning all that much. You're just kind of teaching the same thing again and again. So you've heard this story many, many times. You're just saying it again to a new batch of students. So I decided, you know what, I, although I invested all this time in being in academics, I'm going to go a different way. So I was going to figure out a new career path. And so I decided I'm going to become a poll. So my job was to measure public opinion, figure out what people think, and how to shift public opinion by using psychological principles. I was helping all kinds of organizations. And I really enjoyed it. It was a great job. 
But one of the things that I uh, encountered when I was in the real world of working in corporations is that there's this massive divide between the things that psychologists know lead people to be happy, productive, engaged, motivated, and how most companies are running their operations. So I turned my attention to writing a book. That book is The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. And in it, I take over a thousand academic studies and translate them into plain English. So regardless if you know, you're running an organization or you're just someone who is at the lowest rung just entering for the first time, there's something in there for you about how the latest science can improve your performance. I love that. I love that. I love that. So I, I, I'm, I'm curious, like what actually made you make the jump though, to go from being a psychologist to a book about the workplace? I mean, was there, was there a specific, um, event that, that kind of sparked this? How, how did you get there? Yeah, that's a great question. So was there a specific event? No, it was kind of like every night I would go home and think about, holy crap, there's so much stuff that we're not doing correctly. So for, I'll give you an example. So one is like the, the employee of the month award, right? So at a lot of organizations I worked at, they actually had this. You don't, it, a lot of people think this is something that only happens in supermarkets or like Walmart. No, a lot of organizations think this is a good idea. Let's have an employee of the month award. And the idea is let's, select someone who's done a great job and recognize them, right? So what could be wrong with that? Sounds great. Here's the trouble with the Employee of the Month Award is that you pick one person, and so if you have a team of 100 and you pick one person, then 99 people go home feeling like this month's efforts weren't recognized. And so they feel like, you know, discouraged. Plus, the person who does win the award, he then uh, he or she then thinks, okay, well, I just want it this month. Uh, I'm not, I'm probably not going to win it again next month. So their motivation actually dips. So there's, that's just an example of one practice that we see at organizations that they think is effective, but it is in fact counterproductive. Another example are, um, are performance reviews, right? So at a lot of companies you have, you give people a review, uh, at the end of the year, you tell them, here's what you did uh, well this year. Here's what you can do better next time. And so people think that's great because now they're giving people feedback. <laughs> the trouble with the performance review is that it's so disconnected from when the thing that the person did happened, right? So you don't get feedback on how you perform until like a year later or sometimes a few months later. And so that temporal disconnect, that disconnect in time, uh, makes that feedback feel like it's coming from left field. So I can go on probably for hours, Jason, but I'll leave it there. There are a lot of practices that people think are effective that are actually harming their organizational performance. That, that actually just blew my mind with the uh, the employee of the month because I, I remember I used to do that at my school and I could never understand why everybody else was pissed off. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. All right. So you say there's a science to building an extraordinary workplace, right? So what does the research say we need to be happy at work? Because let's face it, right? Your employee is your first customer. Or, I mean, you know, like, so if they're not happy, nobody's going to be happy, right? Yeah, that's exactly right, because of a phenomenon called mood contagion. So how I feel right now impacts the way you feel and how your listeners feel. So if I'm in a good mood, that tends to be reflected in other people, and it's it's not a conscious process. So if your customers are unhappy, chances are it's because your employees are unhappy too. So taking care of your employees has some uh, concrete benefits. So what do, what do people really want from their workplace? Well, it turns out that what we all want from our workplace is ultimately the same thing we want in every other dimension of of our life, and that's to have our basic human psychological needs fulfilled. So what are those needs? There are three basic 
psychological needs that all of us have, regardless of how old we are, where we were born, what culture we're from. This is what they are. The first is the need for competence. So feeling like you're good at what you do, but also having the opportunity to grow your competence on a regular basis. So feeling like you're learning new things. That thing I was missing when I was an academic. So competence number one. Number two is relatedness. Feeling like you're connecting with the people around you. Feeling like you're valued, respected, appreciated. All of the uh, the great things that happen from close, authentic relationships. And the third is the need for autonomy. So feeling like you have some choice in how you go about doing your job, not just doing your work because your manager is going to get angry with you unless you do it the way he or she instructed, but because you've thought about it and you've determined that this is the right way of doing the job. When we have our basic human psychological needs fulfilled, we tend to be happier, healthier, and more productive. We have decades of research showing that that's the case. Crazy, 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 crazy. All right. Well, so one of the things you also wrote about is, you know, the close friendships with our colleagues makes us more productive. How does that work? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of managers think, you know, if the people who work for me get too close, then it's not going to be a good thing because they're going to start fooling around during the day. They're not really going to work. They're going to show favoritism. Uh, they'll start gossiping. So they say, they say to people, you don't have to be friends with people. Just, you know, do your job. And that's actually the, exactly the wrong way of thinking about it because what the research tells us is that if you're putting together a team, you're more likely to be successful if the people you put together know and like one another rather than if they're specialists, but they're complete strangers. So having people know and like one another makes them more effective. And here's why. Number one, when the people you work with know and like you, then you can pay less attention to whether or not you're fitting in and more attention to actually doing your job. So we forget, you know, when we first get hired by an organization, a lot of our mental energy gets wasted and diverted into thinking, oh, if people, do they respect me? Do they like me? Am I fitting in? But when you have those close relationships, that's no longer a concern. Number two is people are more honest when they work with colleagues who they're friends with. So, for example, Jason, if you and I work together towards a project and I think that you're making a mistake, I might take you aside and say, hey, Jason, you might want to reconsider this. But if I don't know you, then I'm going to stay quiet and I'm going to let you make your mistake. And that's a real problem within organizations that people just don't have the honesty that they need in order to perform well. But then the third thing is that you're more willing to ask for help. So again, if you and I are working together, I don't have a problem coming up to you and saying, hey, do you, do you mind helping me out with this? I know you're really good at this. But if I don't have that relationship with you, then again, I'm going to stay quiet because I don't want it to reflect poorly on my competence. So for all of those reasons, having friends in the workplace makes us more effective as employees. And, and I'm guessing it's just a whole hell of a lot more pleasant. <laughs> so that's true. Yeah, that, that, that too. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's not, you know, I think a lot of organizations ha don't really invest very money resources in building close relationships, you know, to the, to the extent that they do, what do they do? They send people on off sites, right? Like when they have them do trust falls <laughs> and that does not generate close relationships. But in, in the book, I talk about specific and easy to implement things that any organization can do. Okay. Brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant. One of the things I know you talk about is that exercise can make us smarter. Now, what's really cool about this is that so many of my my listeners are in the after-school activity world. They're running programs for martial arts, for dance, for cheer, for swim, for gymnastics. I know they're going to be excited to hear this. So how does how does exercise make us smarter? Yeah, you know, this was a real eye-opener for me and really changed the way that I look at exercise. I used to think exercise is this thing I did at the end of the day 
you know, just to, to look good or to feel good. But then I looked at the research and what I came to realize is that exercise is actually an, an investment in being good at my job. So now I view it as part of my work day. And it's because when we exercise regularly, we get more blood flowing to the brain. So we're better at focusing. Uh, we activate the memory regions of the brain. So we're actually quicker at soaking up information. We don't need people to tell us things two or three times. We get it the first time because we're sharper and we're in a better mood. And if you think about anything that you do in the modern economy involves needing to be in a good mood. You can't collaborate with others effectively if you're not in a good mood. You can't appeal to new clients, new customers, unless you're in a good mood. So for all of those reasons, exercising, again, needs to be viewed as part of our workday because it's actually making us more effective at work. Mm. And I guess starting them young is helpful there. All right. So one of the other things I've seen that you write about is that you know, companies should provide employees with a budget for customizing their workspaces. So understanding that most, most of my folks, they, you know, their workspace, maybe they've got a, a break room or a staff room or something. Um, why is it important to be able to customize? Well, so a lot of organizations, this, you asked me about some of the mistakes that I observed, and a lot of organizations do not invite employees to do any sort of customization. They say, here's your workspace, here's a cubicle. Do your job and, and, uh, you know, if you do well, maybe we'll promote you or give you a raise. But what they don't realize is that in fact it's in their interest, in the company's interest to give people some ownership over their space. And it's because as a species, we tend to do better when we feel comfortable where we are. And one of the ways we can become more comfortable is by, you know, hanging up photos or getting a chair that's more comfortable or adjusting the lighting, having some control over our environment makes our job feel more controllable. And that spills over to our attitude. And so when we feel like everything around us is controllable, we become more invested in our work. The the contrast to that is that when we don't feel like our environment is controllable, when we don't feel comfortable, then that saps our mental energy and leaves less mental resources available for doing our work effectively. And this isn't just my opinion. You know, there are studies showing that when you bring people into the lab and you divide them into two groups, one group you say to them, that's your space. Go do the uh, test we have for you to, t- to complete. And the other group, they say, take a few minutes to customize your space. And when you're ready, take the test. What they find is that people who are able to customize their environment first do 32% better on the uh, ensuing examination as a function of feeling more comfortable. Mm. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, a lot of companies are actually applying this. So there are companies like DreamWorks and Etsy. When an employee joins the organization, they give them a little bit of money. It doesn't have to be thousands of dollars. I think in, in the case of Etsy, it's like $100. And they say to them, here, use this money to customize your space. And they're doing it not because they're being generous or because they want to be quirky. It's because they realize if people are more committed to where they work, they'll be more loyal to the organization. I love that. Absolutely love that. I have a uh, kind of a, a, a off the wall question for you. Sure. Um, yeah. Tell me, you know, when we're talking about an extraordinary workplace, mm-hmm. um, what can video games teach us about this? Yeah. So this is interesting. So if you think about a game like Angry Birds or Tetris, right? Games that have sucked up hundreds of thousands of human being hours, right? Um, why do people get so uh, obsessed with these video games? Like, why do you care about the uh, adventures of a, of a cartoon character? Why do you allow it to eat up your evenings and weekends? And it's because video games have many of the experiences we desperately seek in our work. So what do video games do really, really effectively? 
they provide progressive difficulty. So progressive difficulty, what does that mean? It means the, the game gets harder the longer you play. How do, what's the, what's the trajectory at most organizations? It's actually the opposite, where your job is as hard as it's ever going to be during the first few months. But then after a few months, it becomes predictable. And so it becomes easier. And when a job becomes easy and predictable, it becomes boring. And that's when we get disengaged. So what video games teach us is that if you want to keep people engaged, you actually need to make their job easy at the beginning, just like Angry Birds, first board, you crush it, and then it gets harder and harder. That's what we need at work is we need jobs that get that are easy to manage at the beginning, but then get harder as we grow. That's one component. The other component that video games do really well is they provide immediate feedback. Right. So if you write a memo, you don't know. Was it a good memo? I have no idea. Was it, you know, but video games immediately. I know that jump was good or that jump was bad. My character died. Immediate feedback is critical to keeping people engaged and also recognition when you get uh, good at video games, you get, you know, new, get more points, new, uh, features, new weapons. All of those things keep people addicted to video games. And if we can just build organizations or, or jobs that mimic some of those features, we'll have employees who are far more engaged. I love that. I've never heard that. I've never heard it described like that. And it makes such perfect sense. Right. It really does. Now, you write about, um, you write that our brain sabotages us when we're interviewing job candidates. Um, I probably, you know, even just for the folks in my mastermind group, I get this question probably on a weekly basis. Oh, you know, I have an interview today, you know, and I'm scared or I'm nervous or I'm this or I'm that. You know, what are some examples of how, you know, we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot on this? Yeah, you know, in-person interviews are how the majority of organizations select their employees. And as it turns out, if you look at the data on this, in-person interviews are a disastrous tool for evaluating a job candidate. And it's for a couple of reasons. One is that the vast majority of people who interview lie over the course of the interview. We actually have data on this. If you bring people in and interview them for a position, 81% of them are going to lie. That's conservative because in the study that I'm citing, people were only asked 10 questions. So just in a matter of 10 questions, 81% of people lied. You can only imagine what percentage of people lie once you get to, you know, a few <laughs> days of interviewing. So, so for one thing, the information you're getting is suspect. But even if you if you knew that the information you tried you know you 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 uh, strapped people onto a lie detector and you knew that the information you were getting was 100% accurate, it would still be problematic. And here's why: it's because we automatically make all kinds of erroneous assumptions about a candidate from their appearance. And so good-looking people are viewed as being more competent than they actually are. Tall people are viewed as having greater leadership skills than they actually do. And deep-voiced candidates tend to be viewed as being more trustworthy than they actually are. None of these, none of these things are true, but that's the way we interpret people's appearance as having predictive value that it just does not have. And if it was just a matter of us having these biases, just me telling you about them would probably reverse some of those effects. But the trouble is, is that A, it's unconscious, and B, it then impacts the questions you ask over the course of the interview. So for example, Jason, if I view you as being extroverted, I might ask you a question along the lines of, um, tell me about a time where you led a, a group discussion. <coughs> Excuse me. But if I view you as being introverted, 
I will ask that same question slightly differently. Now, instead of saying, tell me about a time when you led a group discussion, I might say, are you comfortable leading large groups? And all of a sudden, that little uh, variation impacts your response, which then confirms my initial impression. And so it leads the, the job candidate down the path of confirming the interviewers, the interviewer's bias. And so what I argue in the best place to work is rather than relying on in-person interviews, create a job audition. Use some sort of job relevant task where now your first impression isn't by the way, isn't by the person's appearance, but rather by their performance on the task you assigned them to do. So for example, if you're hiring a salesperson, have them come in and sell you on your product. Or if you're hiring a web designer, have them create you a landing page and evaluate them based on how appealing the landing page is. Now you're judging the person not by how effectively they're answering your question, but on their performance on the task that they'll actually be doing on a daily basis. That makes so much sense. Because again, when I think about all the people who are like, oh, I'm going to go out and buy a book um, on interview questions, what, what do any of these questions really have to do with anything? Yeah, you know, being a good interviewee is not predictive of being a good employee. All it demonstrates is that the person perhaps is charismatic or um, enjoyable to be around. And that's useful information after you've determined that the person has the skills you're looking for. Because if you're relying on the in-person interview, oftentimes what you'll do is hire the person you enjoy being around the most. And that often is not the person who's most skilled at the position you're looking to fill. So true. So, so, so true. All right. So tell me this. What do you believe the workplace is going to look like, call it 10 years from now in 2026? Well, I think we're going to get a lot better at applying some of this research in, um, A, making better hiring decisions, but also keeping our finger on the pulse of whether or not our employees are feeling engaged. And, you know, in the uh, in my live presentations, I often talk a lot about this book that came out about a decade ago called Moneyball, which is the story of how baseball teams for decades assumed that they needed more home run hitters. And then they brought in some statisticians and discovered, no, um, winning baseball games doesn't require more home run hitters. You need on-base percentage because the more people get on base, the more uh, likely they are to score a run, and that leads to wins. And so that insight completely transformed the game of baseball, and now every sports team has an analytics person on staff. I think workplaces are going to get to the point where they're going to have their analytics person on staff helping managers figure out this person is engaged, this person is not engaged. Let's change some things right now that will get that person more motivated. And I don't think it's going to require quite as much guesswork as it does right now. The other thing I think we're going to get good at is applying some of these insights to changing the way that we work. One of the things I talk about in the book is that we, uh, te- our, our level of energy tends to fluctuate over the course of the day. So if you're a morning person, you tend to be very sharp between the hours of 9 and 12, and then your afternoons are a little bit of a wasteland, right? Like that's when you're on Facebook or Amazon and you're kind of trying to look like you're working, but you're really not being as effective as you once were. Whereas if you're a night owl, it's the opposite. You're not very good in the morning, but you're very good in the afternoon. And I think we're going to get very good at calibrating the types of tasks we do at different times of day according to our energy levels. Because again, we're going to be able to monitor that information and then link the work that we do when we're most effective. 
I look forward to that. <laughs> really. Uh, all right. It is time for our resource of the week. So Dr. Friedman, tell me this. How can my listeners find out more about you and basically how you're helping folks to succeed? Um, well, there are two resources I want to share. One is the name of the book is The Best Place to Work. So if you go to the best place to work book dot com, you can download the first chapter of the book, get a sense of whether or not it's, it potentially could be valuable for you. That's one place. The other place is to go to the website for my company, which is called Ignite 80. And the reason it's called Ignite 80 is because oh, the research tells us that over 80% of employees are not fully engaged at work. So the mission of Ignite 80 is to reverse that trend by using science-based practices that we teach leaders and managers. Um, so Ignite 80, Ignite, and then the number 80.com is where you can go. You can uh, download a great book on productivity and also find all of my articles on how to create a great workplace. Perfect. And the other one was thebestplacetoworkbook.com. So T-H-E-B-E-S-T-P-L-A-C-E-T-O-W-O-R-K-B-O-O-K.com. And obviously both of these links will be up on the show notes so folks can click through directly if you're actually streaming this off of the site. So fabulous. All right, Dr. Freeman, I always like to end a podcast with what I consider to be a telling question. So if you could give business owners just one solid piece of advice to either help their business or probably more importantly, help them to live a better life, what would that piece of advice be? Well, this is my favorite uh, quote and it is, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> and I, I don't know who said it, but it's brilliant. Uh, and, and the reason I like it so much is because it pushes you to keep on learning. And again, learning is at the core of human happiness. So if you can keep on learning, you're not only will you be more effective at the work that you do, you're also more likely to lead a meaningful life. I love that. Absolutely love it. All right. Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for joining me today. I know how busy your schedule is and it means the world to me that you share some of your time and a whole bunch of your wisdom with us. It's been fabulous. Tips. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Jason. Absolutely. All right, folks, that is all the time we've got today. Thanks so much for tuning into The Real Deal with Jason Silverman. For more info about private coaching or to see if you benefit from one of my mastermind groups, visit me over at www.jasonmsilverman.com. I look forward to helping you achieve the success that you truly deserve. Until next time, let me leave you with this. Get out there and be the real deal. Set a goal, make a plan, work like hell towards it, and achieve the success that's waiting for you. Now's the time. Get out there and make it happen. Go get them. This has been Jason Silverman, and I hope you have a spectacular week. You've been listening to The Real Deal with Jason Silverman. To access the great resources mentioned in the show and for information on coaching and mastermind group opportunities with Jason, please visit jasonmsilverman.com.